Okay, so I'm here with my husband, Antoine, who is also a violin maker. Hello. And this little segment is we're going to give you a, the secret how to remember the difference between Francesco Ruggeri and Giovanni Battista Ruggeri. Can you talk about your memo technique, Antoine, for remembering the difference between Ruggeri Yeah, and sure. Say memo technique technique or just a memo technique. Oh, I thought, no, it's a memo technique because it's for memory, right? It's you yes. to remember. So memo technique. Yeah. All right. So my memo technique yeah. to remember the difference between Ruggeri and Ruggeri, it's a very simple one. Um, I just think Ruggeri with a U is rude because he stays in Cremona. So he's, that's his... Um, Ruggeri is in Cremona, and Rogeri goes rogue with an O, to, so he goes to Brescia, he leaves Cremona, and he goes to Brescia. So Rogeri in Brescia because he goes rogue, and Ruggeri in Cremona because... Because he's, he's so rude, he yeah. never wants to leave Cremona. Yes. Yeah. So it's not necessarily true, but the whole idea of a memo technique is just to remember. Yeah, don't worry. If you're in Cremona, I've got nothing against you and you don't have to ride there. Not the... And you can stay in Cremona, like, all you, you like. You might not be rude. Yeah, you don't have to. It's just a technique to remember. Rugery or Rogery? Thank you, Antoine. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Rogery in Brescia, Rugery in Cremona. Welcome to The Violin Chronicles, a podcast in which I, Linda Lespe, will attempt to bring to life the story surrounding famous, infamous, or just not very well known, but interesting violin makers of history. I'm a violin maker and restorer. I graduated from the French Violin Making School some years ago now, and I currently live and work in Sydney with my husband Antoine, who is also a violin maker and graduate of the French school, l'École Nationale de Lutry in Mircourt. As well as being a luthier, I've always been intrigued with the history of instruments I work with, and in particular, the lives of those who made them. So often, when we look back at history, I know that I have a tendency to look at just one aspect, but here my aim is to join up the puzzle pieces and have a look at an altogether fascinating picture. So join me as I wade through tales not only of fame, famine and war, but also of love, artistic genius, revolutionary craftsmanship, determination, cunning and bravery that all have their part to play in the history of the violin. Welcome to this episode on the life of Francesco Ruggeri. In previous episodes, we have looked at various families living in Cremona, in particular the Amati family and their incredible craftsmanship, innovation and influence on all things violin. So many of the great makers were influenced by this family, and Ruggeri included. In this show, we will be looking at the life of this maker, Francesco Ruggeri, where he learned to make instruments, how he fits into the story, and I will talk about something quite innovative Francesco did that today almost everyone will give the credit to Antonio Stradivari for. My name is Duane Rosengard, and I'm a double bass player in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Well, the Francesco story 
I mean, of course it's interesting because he was an interesting craftsman and a very well-trained and gifted craftsman. He has a lot in common with his two colleagues you may have heard of, Andrea Guarneri and Giacomo Gennaro. The best indications we have at the moment are that Ruggeri's born somewhere between 1628 and 1632. Now, this is very important. And again, this is a part of the common thread with the uh, other two colleagues of Ruggeri's I just mentioned, and the general situation, with a difference, however. Guarneri and Gennaro appear to have come as teenagers into the workshop of Amati, Niccolo Amati. And this, of course, is against the backdrop of the cataclysm or, you know, ungodly uh, mortality that occurred in the roughly 18 months that the Black Death, or bubonic plague as some call it, swept through northern Italy. And the the population of Cremona at that time, it's debated, it's discussed for, you know, many decades, could have been 30,000, might have been 23,000. And the estimates of mortality range from 33 to 60%, depending on what analogous yardstick is used. I'm not an expert in demography, and I've, you know, heard uh, scholars make anal- they they make analogies with other cities in Italy. Then they make other anal- Then they change the other scholars make the analogy only with other Lombard cities, right? Um, this is a very complicated topic. Here's my point: when beginning with Ruggeri. Francesco Ruggeri. The important thing is that he is actually, along with his parents, a survivor of that catastrophe. Now, we know Andrea Guarneri and Giacomo Gennaro were survivors of the catastrophe as well, as young children. But we don't really know exactly about the overall Guarneri family picture in the Black Death of 1630-31. And the same is pretty much true of Gennaro, Giacomo Gennaro. However, with Ruggeri, what you find is that this family is somewhere out in the province of Cremona, and evidently they stayed out of harm's way because, like I said, uh, Francesco Ruggeri's two parents survived. And also, we have incidental records about aunts and uncles of his, of Francesco's. Now, the first date that really has a bearing on Francesco's biography is from 1643. He would be roughly 15, maybe a few years younger. The Ruggeri family, meaning the family of Francesco, appears in a suburban parish of Cremona called San Bernardo. Now, if you imagine Cremona is an egg shape, San Bernardo is on the northern edge of the egg, right? And if you imagine back then, Cremona was surrounded by a heavily fortified, wide and thick medieval wall. And the people out in the countryside were more or less in the open, so to speak, and didn't have the kind of 
protection from ramblers and highway thieves and all that sort of stuff. So, from 1643, Francesco Ruggeri's parents and his siblings are living out in San Bernardo. And I believe he had he had two other, maybe three, other siblings that were born in San Bernardo after the family moved to that parish. Then, in 1652, Francesco Ruggeri married a woman called Ippolita Ravazzi. And their marriage also occurred in this suburban parish, San Bernardo. By the way, you have, you have to consider, when I say suburban, I don't mean that a suburb of Cremona. Now, this is basically a rural area, right? Beyond the wall of Cremona, it was essentially like being in the countryside, right? With either small plots of land and a house here and a cluster of maybe two, three, four houses there. and. Francesca Ruggeri was married and then starting the very, uh, in 1652 and starting the very next year, his family started and his oldest son, Giovanni Battista, was born in 1653 in San Bernardo. Now, over the following years, a couple of what I consider to be really interesting things happened, which is that he has a couple of daughters and then he has a second son. And that second son's name is given the name Jacinto. That's in sixteen in November of 1658. And the godfather of Jacinto Ruggeri, the infant, was Niccolo Amati. Niccolo Amati had to walk from his uh, home and workshop in the center of Cremona out all the way up the north streets there and outside the city gate to go to this parish church. This is why I think this date of 1658 is very important, because this happens to be in that interval, if you want to call it that, where Amati has restarted his shop, and yet Andrea Guarneri and Giacomo Gennaro have left to start their own families and do their own, you know, do their own things, more or less. And in that interval, 1657. 1658 and 59, there are no resident apprentices in Niccolò Amati's household. And otherwise, you know, there's a very long list of apprentices beginning in the 1640s and continuing right down to his death. But there's that one little gap. And I think that all things being uh, relative, that the person who filled in the gap there in the 1650, like let's call it the late 1650s, was Francesco Ruggeri. And he was not a resident apprentice because his folks lived just outside of town, just outside of the city gate. And this, this would explain, first of all, why he's, you know, never appears on those famous census returns, but also it would explain how well, many things, but I think also how out in the country there, Ruggeri could do any number of things because of space. He could have cut and cured wood, had it sitting out there seasoning. He could have had any number of cello projects going at any time. He could have had two or three going at once, which is something probably nearly unthinkable in a home the size of Niccolò Amati's because there were always servants and relatives living there and things. 
and, you know, and violin making aside from cello making. So Ruggieri, I think, was probably in some kind of apprentice phase in the late 1650s. But when we turn the corner into the 1660s, he's probably already working, maybe not under his own name, but he's working for himself. And he's past the, uh, he's past the apprenticeship or journeyman phase. I was just going to say that Giacinto, whose godfather was Niccolò Amati, he died very young. I think he was barely more than a year, year old. However, Francesco's next three sons all survived infancy. And the next one in sequential order was Giacinto. The next one after that was Vincenzo, who's maybe the most famous of the sons. And then the last one was Carlo. Francesco returned to his workshop in San Bernardo after his wedding, and over the years with his wife, they would have a large family. The very next year, 1653, their first son, Giovanni Battista, was born. The couple would go on to have at least six more children. In these same years, Nicola Amati, newly married, would also have children, and the two families would have known each other well, along with the Guaneri kids and, and the Gennario children all living in the same neighbourhood. Niccolò Amati was even the godfather to one of Francesco's son, Giacinto. But in the following years after the weddings of Francesco Ruggeri and Andrea Guarneri, the Amati household has no record of any apprentices living with them. And yet the workshop was producing many instruments. Could Niccolò have had other makers such as Ruggeri and Guarneri working for him still during these years, even though they were no longer living with him? W.E. Hill and Sons Note and I quote, The unmistakable handiwork of Francesco Ruggeri can be found in certain of Niccolò Amati's works, end quote. Francesco Ruggeri, working in his place in San Bernardo, could have been working for Niccolò, but also was building up his own clientele. His instruments definitely went at a cheaper rate to those of the Amatis, and his workmanship was less precise than that of his competitor, but he was able to run a successful business and he found himself experimenting with models and, in particular, bass instruments. And here is where Ruggeri was doing something a little bit different. Jason Price. That's probably his most lasting contribution is, uh, are the really excellent cellos that he made, which are of modern usable size. Yes, because often when people talk about the modern cello, they'll say it's Stradivari. They'll say, oh, he's, he's B model, but... Um, yeah. But actually, he was inspired by Ruggeri. You're totally right. You're totally right. I mean, it was all, I'm sure it was all happening sort of organically and without exact, you know, direct influence and stuff, but, uh, you know, monster passettos that people were making and they work. Um, and so he made a lot of them. That, yeah, Ruggeri figured it out sooner. And a lot of this, you know, has to do, had to do with um, obviously what clients wanted, that there's a reason why he, he was making them small because people wanted them. But it also has to do with string technology. And, you know, this is the end of the 17th century is when people first started wrapping strings in metal, the lower strings. And that, that lets you have a, an instrument which is functional at a much smaller body size. And, per, and I'm sure that's one of the factors that was going on here that, that led to his making smaller cellos. You could have that lowest string not be, you know, the width of a pencil 
because and not super floppy because you could reinforce it with metal. Now you see musicians playing on a bass instrument often had to maneuver around large bulky basses with wide gut strings. The instrument's response was often slow and so it was difficult to play fast-paced compositions and were mostly relegated to simpler bass parts. But in the last few years a new technology had changed things. Large gut strings were beginning to be wound with metals which gave them more tension and this meant that the instrument did not have to be so long and wide to accommodate the strings that would play the same note. This new string technology is really pivotal in the story of the cello and one of the reasons for its success as an instrument and Ruggieri's renown and perhaps even his motivation in making this instrument. I asked Dan Larson from Gamut Strings about the history of strings and why they are so important in determining the size and playability of an instrument. My name is Dan Larson and I run a business called Gamut Music Incorporated. And I'm a trained violin maker. I also make Baroque guitars and lutes of the Baroque and the Renaissance variety. And I have a workshop in Duluth, Minnesota that makes musical strings or gut strings for musical instruments. The 17th century actually is a, is a very exciting time for many, many things. There was a, a burgeoning market for everything at that time. And there was a lot of technology being brought to the world in many ways, and there was a lot of people beginning to experiment with things. And that was back in the day when a guy could get, get an idea and he could make something, he could invent something, he could uh, recognize a new law of nature. And that's just what educated people did back in those days uh, in, the, in the 17th century. Up until the mid-17th century, when you had strings, you had only one choice of string material, and that was gut. There was sheep gut was used, there was uh, beef gut that was used, there were some other, allegedly, some different uh, animals that were used for gut, but primarily it was sheep gut, and secondarily it was beef gut. Those were the two primary materials that were used, largely because that was a material that was available. People at that time ate a lot of sheep and not so many cattle, but they had a certain number of cattle that they had with slaughter for, for various reasons. So the only choice that they had for strings was gut. String making in itself was a whole industry, and in 1656, just a few years after Ruggieri married, Paris had its first guild of boyardier, that's the French word for gut string makers. Their workshops were near the slaughterhouse in the Faubourg Saint-Martin. Dan Larson. What were the main uh, places that strings came from? Were, were there sort of string making centres, or did people make strings everywhere? Would musicians make their own strings? <laughs> No, they would. They, they wouldn't. It was it was too complicated a system, and the material was was very carefully controlled by the people that made strings. Strings tended to be made in centers, and they were geographical areas were were primarily designated as certain areas where strings were made, and and it was usually in large population areas where a lot of animals were killed because the uh, the animals would 
be the source of the material to make the strings. So you ended up with a lot of string making in Paris, for instance, uh, Lyon. There was an enormous and tremendous development of string making in Marknekuchen in Germany, uh, in the, the Saxon region there. And they uh, had an international industry where they would uh, gather gut from all over the Eastern Europe and bring it into the city to be processed into guts. The gut string making was an international business. It was an international concern. The transporting of the material was very specialized, so it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't go bad in transit. And preserving it was a very specific thing that had they had to develop different ways of carrying it to preserve it, so it wouldn't go bad. And so had had sorry, how did they do? How did they do it? How did they carry it without it going off? Uh, oh, they, they made these special boxes. And uh, they were just big, thick boxes that would protect the, the strings from not, not only the cold, but from animals, because the, the little critters like to get into it. It's tasty. The, I think the biggest, the biggest threat to transporting gut was the, was the critters that would want to get into it. A lot more than the cold and thing, but it was usually they were usually transmitted uh, dry. Right. Okay. So tra- they were transported dry. So they would in the source where they were taken, the gut would have been dried out, uh, and then 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 put in these uh, containers. And the containers were I don't know if they were just particularly heavy, or they were reinforced with metal or something. But they would they would be very. Uh, specifically made to resist the influence of the of the animals who wanted to get in and and eat the gut. Right, right. There, there's also different traditions. The German tradition is very different than the the Italian tradition, which is very different than the French tradition. And the French and the and the Italians tended to use more fresh gut, where they would take the the gut from the animal and turn it into a string pretty much immediately. The Germans had this process of drying the gut so they could transport the gut over great distances, and then they could also make the gut into strings at their leisure, which was uh, just uh, suited them better. It it was uh, an international industry. It was a very sophisticated industry, as it continues to be even today. And it varied from one country to another. Every each country had their own particular ways of going about it, and and therefore the result of the different strings had uh, different reputations. You know, the, the the strings from Italy had a reputation for really good top strings, and the French had a really good reputation for lower strings, and the Germans had a really good reputation for inexpensive strings, and, you know, just everybody had their own little niche that they worked into, into the market. If you were a string maker, where did that put you in? uh, Was that a sort of a sort of a lower class thing, or were you a proud craftsman? Do, Do you know what their position in society would have been? Oh, the the string makers were the richest men in town. They were quite prosperous in Marknekuchen. The literally the richest people in town were the people that owned the string making factories. Emily Brayshaw. It's really interesting that you talk about 
this idea of the wire wrapped around the gut to make strings because that has long been by this time a technique that is used um, in textile production in that you would have like a thread and literally wind gold or silver wire around it and that's how you get gold and silver embroidery thread and um, depending on the thickness of that you can get like super fine for embroidery or you and and weaving or you can perhaps get thicker for fringing and things like that part of me wonders and maybe somebody out there will have the answer whether you know these textile techniques influenced this technique of string making was that everywhere they were using this everywhere everywhere everywhere. yeah Yeah, Yeah, so you had this mixing of technologies and Cremona is a city you know bursting with textiles yeah it it could well be I mean it there's so much overlap and you know we remember remember as well like it's a small place it's by the end of the plague it's 17,000 people everybody has to know everybody else you know everybody knows everybody else Mm. right that's kind of how these places work so you do get these kind of pots of ideas too you know that, that are happening and I think this is really sort of a fascinating thing this show is sponsored by Terizio fine instruments and bows And right now, I would like to talk about a formidable database you can access today, if you wish, called the Cosio Archive. For people who listen to this podcast, something that you might be thinking when you're listening to me telling the stories of violin makers is you would really love to see pictures of the instruments that they make. And for that, you have the perfect resource. Here is Jason Price, director of Terizio, to tell you about it. Yes, the the Cozio Archive. We now own it, maintain it, and are continually adding to it over 100,000 instruments in the database, over 4,000 makers, which we are following and tracking, 200,000 auction prices. It's really quite cool. If I pull up the stats for, you know, a a maker like Ruggeri, I get 336 instruments by Francesco Ruggeri. It's a unique resource, and we hope it's really useful. Yes, and... So what I love is that often in some databases, you just get one photo per maker, but in the Cosio archive, for example, for Ruggeri, you're able to look at the maker's whole career in photos and you see influences from other makers. Mm -hmm. You can see the dates where his sons are working for him and you can see examples of that work and the style and how it's... They're similar. For example, you can look up Vincenzo Ruggeri and see how his style is similar to his father. Yeah, yeah. There's a violin in your archive, uh, 1680, called the Milanolo, which is really beautiful, Yeah, which is a a small violin. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of his work when he's working with his sons in when Mm -hmm. the workshop was very successful. And then there's a violin from 1650, which was his earlier work. Mm-hmm. I think maybe my favorite name for an instrument is the Admiral Buckle. <laughs> Admiral Buckle, that's wonderful. His life and his, it kind of reads like something out of a Jane Austen uh, book. <laughs> 
wonderful. And then uh, there's a 1673 cello, which is re- really beautiful. And the, the quality of the photo is amazing. You can zoom right in and see the texture of the varnish. You can see mm-hmm. the purfling. You can tell that the purfling's been yep. tinted. Yep. There are examples of from 1692, so his later work, and 1695, right to the the end of his making career, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm really, really happy that you find it useful. To have access to all these photos, what's the process to subscribe? The annual subscription is $100 and allows you unlimited access to as many makers and as many instruments as you want to look at. Yeah, and I find the auction results quite helpful as well as a violin maker because we're often having to research different prices and you have to look at a lot of different resources to get an idea of a market value of an instrument. Yes. And so that's just one of our tools that we use in that process. Yes, and so you have your auctions, the photos, the auction results, and there's also the carteggio. We get the emails every Every week. Good. The cart- I love the Cartegio project. It's, it's something I really, I really enjoy. We try to make it long form discussions on things that are interesting, interesting corners of our world. And we invite some of the, uh, some, some really distinguished people who write for it and have frankly very, uh, I think, inspiring and, and fascinating things to say. You don't have to be a subscriber to the archive to have access to the Cartegio articles. You can sign up for them and that is absolutely free. So there you have it. If you would like to subscribe to the Cosio Archive, read a Cartegio article, or browse the auction catalogue, go to terizio.com. Now back to the show. Dan Larson. So the only choice that they had for strings was gut. That works well if you have an instrument that has only one string. It works really, really well. When you have an instrument that has more than one string, you have to start playing around with the design of the string because you have strings that have to have different pitches. So you have to figure out how to get the different pitches. And more importantly, you have to figure out what size the instrument needs to be to get the pitches of the playing gut strings to work as efficiently as possible. And they developed some science around that. There were various people that were uh, instrumental. Uh, Mersenne, for instance, developed a series of laws about uh, gut strings and how it should work and, and how the strings should be calculated so they would have the this, this same amount of tension based on a, a, a given length. That You could have a six-stringed instrument and all the strings would have the same amount of tension, but they would be at the different pitches that they were supposed to be. So he developed a whole a whole system of laws and rules to govern those things. Uh, Galileo's father was very much into figuring out strings. And in fact, Galileo's, one of his first experiences in science was to help his dad make tests of strings. He had this sort of setup where they would hang a hook on a string and then hang a weight on it and change the lengths and they would figure out what the pitch of the string would be given different weights on it and different masses and different uh, uh, tensions and so forth. So there, there was a lot of that going on. They were trying to figure out how strings worked and how they could bring the the design into it. That That works all right. It works fine. But it does mean that you end up with some with some very thick strings on the bottom, because the instrument has to be 
it has to be scaled such that you can get the first string up to the pitch that you want the first string to be. So it's really the first string of the instrument that dictates the size of the instrument. And that's why we get, you know, that's why the violin is the size that violin is, and the size of a cello, the size of a cello is, and so on and so forth. around this time that the first references to overspun strings appear. The gut strings were generally wrapped in silver, but also in copper and brass. Thanks to these strings, makers such as Ruggieri could make smaller cellos for musicians, and that was just what he did. Not only could you buy yourself a more manoeuvrable instrument, but composers, especially such places as Bologna and Naples, had composers writing music for the cello. Jason Price. I made a, a nickel harper once, which is like a Swedish violin. Cool. And yeah. often people will put cello strings on them. And and that's when you see that it's yeah. not ideal. Like really the uh, Savarez, you could say, I want this length and I want this note for this length. And they make the perfect string and it sounded so much better. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It is funny to think of what the, the you know string industry looked like in the in the 17th century, I mean, obviously you didn't just go on Amazon and get some strings delivered to your house. Uh, you know, you probably, I'm sure it was butchers out the front door and then fishing line and violin strings out the back. Yeah. It's kind of funny. And in your, an article you wrote that's in the, I was, I'm going to say Cosio Archive, but that's not right. It's the Terizio. You were talking about uh, composers. In the second half of the 1600s, there were people actually yeah. writing yeah. specifically for cello. That's really the, when the, the cello became a, considered as a, as a solo instrument, the end of that 17th century and early 18th century. And that's when you see Gabrielli start writing for these really like complicated uh, lines for, the, for, for solo cello. And then obviously Baccarini did it 30, 40 years later. And um, yeah, that's obviously the makers had to, had to step up their game and make instruments that could handle that. For sure. Yeah, it's like a, I feel like it's a chicken or the egg. I'm like, oh, they're writing for solo cello, and yes, and is that because then they did they make smaller violin uh, cellos, or or, or <laughs> th- they discovered that they have these smaller good sound like uh, cellos that were responsive because they have to be uh, quite responsive to write more virtuous absolutely like, music for. Yeah, absolutely a chicken and egg, but like a four part chicken and egg with like musician, composer, instrument, string. Um, I imagine there were a lot of factors that were sort of, yeah, all coming together and, and, uh, it didn't all happen at once, but that's, that's the period in which, in which cellos became smaller because musicians wanted them to be smaller. Larson. 
the instrument has to be it has to be scaled such that you can get the first string up to the pitch that you want the first string to be. So it's really the first string of the instrument that dictates the size of the instrument. You know, that's why the violin is the size that the violin is, and the size of the cello the size of the cello is, and so on and so forth. And then when you have the when you have established the string length based on the pitch of the top string, then you have to figure out what the other strings are going to be, because theoretically you should change the length of those, like in a, in a harpsichord. You can use the, you could use the same diameter of string, the same type of string, just make it longer, and you would get the different pitches, and it would uh, it would sound good and and it would work well. But on a fixed length instrument like a violin or a cello, you can't do that. You can't have multiple lengths of strings. So they had to develop a system that uh, became known as foreshortening. So they would change the mass of the string, which would allow them to put, make the string shorter and maintain the tension that the instrument needed to be, the, the string needed to have on it to, to sound properly. Because they had only one material, the only thing they could do was to add more gut and make the strings thicker to add mass to the string for the lower strings to get the tension that they required on it. And that, that works fine. They, there were different types of strings that they developed with, with different twisting technologies that would uh, the string would be flexible enough to, to play at those relatively low tensions at the, the thicknesses that they, were, that they needed and so forth. But uh, the, the end result wasn't 100% satisfactory for them. Sorry, are, are you saying that, um, so for Andrea Amati, for example, when he made his violin, which is sort of what we go on today, he, mm-hmm. he had to already have had the, the, the strings were already uh, like developed and he made right. it, he had to make it so that it could accommodate those strings. Exactly, yeah. Ah, so, so the strings come before the, the violin. <laughs> Oh, the strings come before the violin, yeah. yeah. The strings come before everything. Yeah. Do you think he would have um, used, they would have used, say, lute strings? Would, would they have been the best strings then? Like if you were a maker in the 16th century, what would you have taken? Um, I think the string makers at the time were making strings for everything. Uh, okay. The violin was a very popular instrument. Okay. Um, and there were string makers that made strings specifically for the violin. And I think that most of the string shops probably made strings for lutes and strings for violins. Some some of the string gauges would double over and be useful on 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 both, right. but um, not so many because the violin had tended to have a lot more tension than the lute does. Yeah, and would he have gone and said, "I'm making an instrument this size. Can you make me a string to fit it?" And the string makers would have gone, "Okay, yeah, all right." Uh, sure, sure, okay. and they would have had standard sizes that they were using. Okay, you know, he would just say, "I need, I need, uh, you know, five violin E strings and six A strings and two D strings and and eighteen G strings," and that's they would have said, "Okay, but that's what we'll get for you." So anyway, the 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 concept of the fact that there was only one string material is really important in understanding the development of the instruments and the size, especially the sizing of the instruments. Uh, that's, that's really, really important to understand that, that they were limited by this material. And on the other hand, they were sort of 
fortunate enough to have only one material. It, it made things a little simpler in many ways. You know, there weren't that many options for sizing if they were sticking to that one principle of the well in the lute world when they talked about tuning a, an instrument they would say tune the top string to the point just before it breaks <laughs> which is always a how do you know fun thing to know if it breaks okay you went a little bit too far you shouldn't have gone that far so it's like trying to prove a negative you can't always do that so easily the violin strings tended to be bigger and heavier anyway so they they probably didn't have so much of a problem with that but in the 17th century, in the, the mid-1600s, something happened. And we don't know exactly where. Um, I suspect it happened in France. There was a, a popular book written by John Playford that came out in 1664 with the edition that has this article that specifies a new type of string that was available for violins. It says specifically that it has silver wire and the wire was, was twisted or gimped onto silk or gut to make the string, and the string was specifically used for the violin G-string. And, of course, this string is, has marvelous properties and, and is the most wonderful string ever invented by man and so forth, as, as most salesmen would say. In, uh, the best string in the world. In a good, unregulated market, yeah. I, I love how um, a lot of some string brands will like have these claims for it being the best, you know, the best E string in the world. Oh sure, <laughs> that would, that one's actually made in Australia. I have the packet. I have the best E string in the world. <laughs> yes, from from about it's about a hundred years old. Yeah, they're they're well. I guess if you stop and think about it, if you if you're not going to make something the best in the world, why do you even bother? What's the point? You never, no one ever says this is the third, maybe maybe fourth, third or fourth best thing in the world. <laughs> you know, it never happens that way. There was this new type of string that came available that was advertised in 1664. So that indicates to me that this technology had been developing for quite some time before that. Nothing ever comes out. Nobody ever invents something and then advertises it the next day. That's just not the way things work. So probably by the 1630s or 1640s, there was this experimentation of combining the wire with, and with the string material. This brings us to the end of this second episode of Francesco Ruggeri, a man who lived with the times, embracing new technologies and innovating his instruments. Cello players everywhere can be a little bit thankful to him and his influence on other makers in perfecting this instrument. I'd like to thank my guests, Dwayne Rosengard, Jason Price, Dr. Emily Brayshaw and Dan Larson for joining me today. That incredible cello playing you've heard throughout the episode is by Timo Vecchio Valve, Tippi, from the Australian Chamber Orchestra, playing on his wonderful Amati Brothers cello made in 1616. If you would like to hear the fascinating story of his cello and the man who made it, you can go back and listen to episodes 9 and 10 about the Amati Brothers and this cello in particular. But the story of Ruggeri is not over. For now, I'll say goodbye and I hope you will join me for the next episode of The Violin Chronicles. Thank you.